Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This program is a service of the Law Offices of Peter J. Lamont, and before we begin today, I just want to remind you that none of the information provided on today's program constitutes legal advice, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of having a guest today, uh, I'm going to run through the anatomy of a lawsuit uh, and give some brief tips uh, on everything from selecting a lawyer, how you know when you have a potential lawsuit, all the way down through an explanation of the intricacies of filing the suit and what happens after you file. So if you've got questions, I invite you to call in today. The call-in number to the switchboard is 347 855 8831. We'll try to take as many calls as possible. Uh, the idea here is to try to get through a lot of information. Uh, if you want more detail on some of the topics, I'll give you an email address and way to contact us at the conclusion of the show, and that way we can talk in, in detail about some of your more specific questions. Let's start today with talking about when you know that you need to speak to an attorney. And it can be very confusing because you hear people all the time say, oh, I've got a great case or, oh, something happened to me and, and I'm going to sue, you know, whether it's a business or an individual. And oftentimes the thought of going to see a lawyer, how do I find a lawyer, it can be so overwhelming that people who may have valid claims, they just don't do anything with their, their potential claims. They just let it all you know, fall by the wayside. And it's unfortunate because sometimes, whether you're a business or a corporation, you do deserve some sort of justice and you have to avail yourself of your legal rights that are available to you. So when you believe that you have a potential case, mm -hmm. oftentimes your first uh, step is to talk to your spouse or your family and run it by them or coworkers. If you believe you've got a potential claim and you don't know the intricacies of the law as to whether or not your claim is valid, sure, talk to your family, but I recommend that you speak to an attorney as soon as possible. Now, the reason for that is twofold. First of all, every claim, whether your business or a personal client, is governed by a statute of limitations. Now, what is a statute of limitations? Each state has a specific number of of days or years that you can file a particular claim. 
So, for example, in New Jersey, if you wanted to file a personal injury lawsuit, you have two years from the date that the incident occurred. And beyond that date, even if you have significant injuries, you will be precluded from moving forward. In uh, a business um, context, for example, you have a breach of contract claim. Again, in New Jersey and in most other states, you've got a six-year statute of limitations. So if you don't uh, file a lawsuit within six years, then you've essentially waived your rights. So that's, that's number one. Go see a lawyer as soon as possible because you've got a statute of limitations that you need to deal with. Secondly, going to see a lawyer will put to rest any thoughts that you have in the back of your mind as to whether or not you have a case. Um, oftentimes, you don't do something and then you know you are, are plagued with thinking to yourself, oh, if I'd only gone and seen a lawyer, if I'd only gone, I think I had a case. Well, find out for sure. Go to a lawyer. Most often, consultations are free. And if you find a lawyer who wants to charge you a consultation fee, you're under no obligation to go and speak with that lawyer. Uh, but I do suggest that you get to a lawyer. So now let's get into that step. Well, how do I choose a lawyer? What do I look for? Well, there's a few things. First of all, you need, and this is the most important in my opinion, you need to feel connected with that attorney. You need to be able to feel that you can ask that attorney any question that you want, get an answer, and that he's going to respect you and the fact that you've got questions. So, again, regardless, personal or business, it doesn't make a difference. And all of, of the discussions that we have today are going to apply to both businesses and uh, personal law matters. But you need to find an attorney that you can get along with because you're going to be dealing with this person for you know a number of months at the very least, depending upon the nature of your legal matter. It could be up to two or three years. And what you don't want is you don't want to get into a situation where you're having personality conflicts with the lawyer because it makes it difficult for the lawyer to pursue your claim or your defense, and it makes it difficult for you dealing with him and cooperating. And, and cooperating with your attorney is a, a very critical uh, factor. So when you go and you first look for a lawyer, years ago it was the phone book. Today it's pretty much word of mouth and the Internet. So when you go and you start looking, uh, you should look for certain things. Number one, make sure that the attorney that you are looking into is experienced in the area of law that you've got a question in. So if it's a contract case, don't go to a real estate attorney. There are firms that handle a larger number of things. They have uh, different departments. Like our firm, for example, we've got a, a business department. We've got a personal injury department. We've got a contract department. So um, in a case like uh, you know, the contract issue, you'd be able to go to a, a firm that has multiple departments. Larger firms have that. Uh, some specialty firms like our firm has that. But, you know, quite often people don't know who to go to and they just go to somebody that Aunt Millie went to last year and it happens to be an estates uh, lawyer. And, and that's not somebody that's going to help you with the contract issue. So do some research. There are plenty of websites available for free where you can look into the background of a lawyer. You can see what area this lawyer practices in. And you also get some additional information. 
where he went to school, when he graduated law school, what states he's admitted to, um, and, and some other information. And one of the, the best sites that I've come across is AVO, and that's www.avvo.com. And it's a comprehensive database of all of the lawyers admitted to the state and federal bars in the country. And it gives you some insight into who you might be dealing with. It gives you some uh, some pictures and some resume and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's very, very helpful. So I suggest that you make use of that free resource. The next step, once you've identified the attorney or a few attorneys who you'd like to go speak with, call them up and try to get yourself a consultation with them. Again, you shouldn't have to pay for a consultation. They should be free. So if you've got an attorney looking to charge you a consultation fee, you know, in my opinion, I advise that you go to somebody who is offering it for free. So what should you do in preparation for going to meet with this lawyer? Well, number one, make sure that you have your facts straight. I advise writing them down. It doesn't need to be a, uh, a comprehensive book, but it does need to at least identify the issues, relevant time periods, certain times, uh, certain claims, dates are important. So have all that information available. Also bring with you any important or relevant documents. How do you know if they're important? Well, if you think that they might be relevant to your claim, bring them with you. The attorney can look through them and decide whether or not it is or you know is not important, but bring them with you. Oftentimes, you can save yourself time when dealing with an attorney, if you bring with you whatever you have in your possession and that attorney is able to make copies of them and give you back your originals and you've saved a great deal of time and a lot of steps in the litigation process. So now you've, you've sat down face-to-face, you've met with your attorney. Um, oh, he's not your attorney yet. You've met with a attorney. And let's assume that he listens, he or she listens to you, understands what you're saying, and you feel a connection. And again, you're not looking for a best friend, but you are looking for somebody that you can connect to and that you can ask questions of, and they're not going to get annoyed with you. And you can get the general sense after a 30 to 60-minute consultation with an attorney whether or not he or she is somebody that you can actually work with. The next step is that the attorney is going to ask you to sign an agreement. They can be called an engagement agreement, an engagement letter, or a retainer agreement. Now, the term retainer is something that people often confuse. There's a retainer fee and there's a retainer agreement. So what's the difference? Well, a retainer fee is a dollar amount that an attorney will ask you to pay up front, and that attorney will put that money into an account and then bill you hourly or however they decide to do it and deduct money to cover their time from the retainer fee that you have essentially deposited with that attorney. Once the retainer fee is uh, dwindled or is close to to, to being uh, completed, the attorney may ask you for additional money. So that's a retainer fee. But not every lawsuit or, or claim requires a retainer fee. And of course, you know, lawyers are different. Some, some lawyers will never take a retainer fee. They'll bill you hourly or they'll bill you on some other uh, schedule, while other attorneys are more traditional and, and you'll have to pay a retainer fee. 
But we're talking about the next step being a retainer agreement. This is essentially a document that outlines what the attorney is and is not going to do for you and what your obligations are. And it's important because it protects not just the attorney, but you. You have a clear understanding of what you will get from the attorney and what your obligations are. So, for example, um, a retainer might spell out that the attorney is going to file a lawsuit on your behalf against defendant X. And your obligations are to fully cooperate with the attorney, to not settle the case on your own without dealing with the attorney, um, to update him if you change your address or telephone number, that sort of thing. And you sign the retainer agreement, you get a copy of it, and it basically outlines what you are going to pay the attorney, how it's going to work. Um, and this is best illustrated in personal injury cases where you'll sign a retainer agreement that is based on a contingency fee. So in other words, you don't pay any money to the attorney for legal fees until and if he or she recovers for you. It spells it all out in the agreement. Um, you don't pay any money up front. You don't pay a retainer fee, but you do sign a retainer. Now, one thing I'd like to point out uh, as an aside is the fact that with personal injury cases and personal injury lawyers, you have to be careful because often you'll see advertisements and you'll hear claims mm -hmm. by lawyers that we won't charge you any fees unless we recover. But there is a difference between fees, which is what you pay an attorney for his time, and costs. Costs are upfront monies that you pay to a file a lawsuit. So filing a complaint with the court costs money. And that attorney may lay out those costs for you and then seek reimbursement of it. So in theory, you could go through a case and you could build up $5,000 in costs, which that attorney has laid out for you. And at the end of the case, you don't recover anything. And so the attorney is not entitled to fees, but under the retainer agreement, he is still entitled to reimbursement of his costs. So be careful and look at the retainer agreement and make sure that you question the attorney so that you understand how the repayment of costs will work. Okay, it's a very important thing. Now that you've selected your attorney and you have signed the retainer agreement, what's the next step? Well, let's assume, obviously, that this is litigation, that we're going to file a lawsuit. So the next step is to let your attorney have time to draft a complaint. That's how a lawsuit is initiated in the United States, by the filing and service of a complaint. Now, what's a complaint? It's basically a legal document that, putting aside the legal mumbo-jumbo, outlines what your potential claim is, why you are suing the defendant. Here is what the defendant did to me. And it's, it's written, you know, straightforward, but there's some legalese splashed in there. But that's the, the basis of a complaint. Here is why I am entitled to recover money. And a lawyer doesn't have to get too crazy as far as detail goes. You just have to plead the elements of a particular claim. So, for example, if it's a negligence claim and you're going to be suing defendant X because he was negligent in 
maintaining his commercial property and you slipped and fell. The lawyer would want to establish in the complaint all of the elements of negligence, that the defendant owed a duty to you, that he breached the duty, that as a result of the duty uh, being the direct and proximate cause of that breach, you sustained injuries. So that would be sufficient to set forth a claim for negligence. So that's the idea behind the complaint. Now what happens is that the defendant gets served, and that means that it's typically, depending upon the court, typically via a process server, somebody who physically takes the filed complaint, delivers it to the defendant, and hands it to them. And you've seen it on TV where you've got somebody saying you've been served, and you know they'll pretend to deliver flowers to you and then hand you a lawsuit, and that might be a little overly dramatic, but that's the idea. And then that, that defendant has an opportunity to retain a lawyer or to represent themselves depending upon whether or not they're a corporation because corporations cannot represent themselves. Uh, they need an attorney to represent them. And they have a set amount of time to respond. And that response is called an answer. And they file and serve the answer which responds to your allegations. And Similar to the complaint where it doesn't need to be so detailed, an answer needs to be less detailed. You don't really need to address the merits, per se, of the allegations. You simply need to uh, deny or admit them or you know, deny for other legal reasons. But that's the idea behind it. So somebody could serve a 100-page complaint on a defendant, and it could contain multiple clauses of action, and the defendant just simply responds to each allegation, deny, 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 I don't have enough information to admit or deny, something like that, and that's sufficient. Now, before we go forward, let's just take one step back and, and talk about what makes a lawsuit. What can you sue for? Now, this is a very, very difficult question to answer because the way that the United States legal system is set up you can, in theory, sue somebody for just about anything. That doesn't mean that your claim will be successful, but it, it means that you are entitled to file a complaint against a defendant. Now, the complaint could be dismissed relatively quickly if your complaint doesn't state a good faith or doesn't have a good faith basis. So, in theory, you could sue somebody for something that you know they did not do, but you sue them anyway. That person will have to defend themselves or retain an attorney to defend them. And if you can prove that you've had a good faith basis for filing the complaint, again, this isn't the merit, proving the merits of the case, but proving a good faith basis, typically, I believe this person did this to me, that could be sufficient. Now, later on, you'll ultimately lose because you know that the person didn't do what you're alleging, but it doesn't prevent you from filing the suit. Now, that sort of behavior is, is something you should not engage in. You should never file a lawsuit just to uh, get the goat, uh, as I like to say, of the defendant, because what happens is that you can be hit with sanctions and fines for frivolous litigation. So... Every state in the United States has some sort of frivolous litigation uh, requirement or rule. And if you file litigation 
frivolously, knowing that the defendant did not do the things you're alleging, you can be subject to fines and penalties. So that is something you should never do. All right, now moving forward, once you've received an answer from the defendant, we enter into a period of time that's referred to as discovery. Now, you may have heard of, of this, discovery, interrogatories, depositions. What is discovery? Well, depending upon the state and depending upon the court, discovery is a period of time that is set either by a judge or by statute or by you know, court rule wherein all the parties involved have an opportunity to exchange documents, ask questions, take depositions, which are in-person question and answer sessions. I'll go over that uh, with you in, in a few minutes. Um, and develop either their case or their defense of the case. So in other words, you enter into this period called discovery. And the first thing that happens is you and, and your attorney get served with a document called uh, request for production of documents or notice to produce. And it lists all of the documents that the opposing side wants from you. And let's, let's assume that it's uh, an employment discrimination case. You are the plaintiff. The defendant is going to ask you for a variety of things, such as doctor's notes, therapist treatment, if, if you're claiming some sort of psychological injury. They're going to want to see how many jobs you've applied to since you were fired. So they're going to ask you for all this information. Most of the time, the requests are relevant. Sometimes you may look at a request and say, why are they asking me that? But the discovery process is relatively loose, uh, and you can ask for things that might not be relevant at trial but could be relevant for the discovery process to, to flesh out your case or your defense. In addition, uh, you could get served with something called a demand for interrogatories. And what are those? Well, interrogatories are questions asked by the other side, uh, and then and they're very specific, and you have to respond to those questions. Now, when you respond to those questions, at the conclusion of the document, you're going to be signing a certification or an affirmation or an affidavit that basically says, I'm aware that the information provided above your answers are true and accurate to the best of your ability, and that if they are willfully false, that you're subject to punishment. So what does that mean? When you complete answers to interrogatories, and you do this with your attorney, you are essentially providing testimony as if you were in front of a judge and a jury. You are swearing under oath, essentially, that these answers are true and accurate. Now, why do lawyers exchange these documents? Why do they ask for interrogatories? Well, obviously, to get information about the claim, either to defend it or to prosecute it. And they're going to look for evidence that might support their arguments against or for the claims. Now, the documents that they receive can be simple, could be a few documents that they're looking for, or it could be something that takes a tremendous amount of time. There's litigation that goes on for years just in the discovery phase. And we see this a lot in business litigation. 
And clients don't always understand the amount of time necessary to handle uh, complex litigation. You could be served with hundreds and hundreds of requests for documents. And you have to produce these documents or come up with a reason why you can't produce them. And it can be a very expensive process, but it's a necessary process of every lawsuit. Now, also part of the discovery process, but not considered to be written discovery, is the deposition process. What's that? We've seen it on TV. We've we've seen it on shows like The Office. Uh, it, it's presented in a humorous fashion. It's essentially you and your lawyer sitting across the table from the defendants and their lawyers, and there's a court reporter and they're asking questions. Well, you know, similar to what you see on TV, that's how it is. You typically go to either your lawyer's office or to the other lawyer's office or occasionally to a courthouse where you go into a, a room. You know, this is not in front of a judge. And you essentially sit down with your lawyer and the lawyers from the other side. And a case could have five or six different parties, uh, six or so different defendants. So you'll have a lawyer essentially for each defendant. And there'll be a court reporter or a stenographer. And this person is going to take down verbatim everything that transpires during this deposition. And, and really, it's a question and answer session. So the court reporter is going to type into her little machine. Now they're using computers more than they are the old uh, uh, stenography machines. And it's going to be produced into a book called a deposition transcript. And that transcript is going to be something that the attorneys can use at trial. Well, how do they use it at trial? It can be used for a variety of, of, uh, of reasons, but one reason is to impeach the testimony of a witness. So let's assume that at your deposition, you answer a particular question, and the question is something to the effect of, did you sign this contract on this date? And you testify at your deposition, yes, I did. And then at trial, uh, a similar question is asked to you, and you give a different answer. You say, no, I didn't. Well, the attorney can now go back to the transcript, pick it up, and find where you testified previously that you did. And they can say, I want to refresh your recollection that on such and such date, you testified under oath that you did, in fact, sign that contract. And they can do this in front of a jury if it's a jury trial. Um, and obviously you could imagine what sort of effect that would have uh, on a jury's decision as to whether or not you may or may not be lying. So that, that's how these transcripts are used. Now let's get into some specifics about the deposition. It's a question and answer session. You'll sit with your attorney who's there to defend you uh, by making objections and, and noting objections on the record, meaning in the transcript, to the, the stenographer. Uh, but they oftentimes do not question you. You're primarily being questioned by the your adversaries. So what sort of questions are asked? Really, most, say, uh, most states today provide free reign over a lot of the questions that can be asked at deposition. And uh, there are certain things that, that are so off-topic that you can object or your attorney could object and then you're not forced to answer them. 
But questions can be asked like, what's your your um, education? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Do you have any brothers and sisters? What are their names? What are their ages? And that might not be necessarily relevant to your claim. Now, let's say you have a slip and fall claim. Does it really make a difference in your case that you've got a brother and his name's Sam? No. But they're entitled to ask those questions. Uh, oftentimes, lawyers do it as a strategy. Other times, they do it to try to uh, learn more about you uh, or to be able to track you down should you all of a sudden disappear. There's a variety of reasons, but the bottom line is they can ask you a lot of things that are not relevant and not going to be pertinent to your case. So after your deposition is completed, then your attorneys will have an opportunity to depose the other parties in the case. And this process, depending upon the number of parties, can be quite extensive. You know, We've seen depositions that lasted two hours. Some have been as short as a half an hour. And we've seen depositions that have gone on for four and five days of the same party. So depending upon the nature of your claim, um, you know, the deposition process could, could really vary from a very short deposition to an extensive, ongoing, multi-day deposition. Now, once the depositions are done, you're most often nearing the end of the discovery process. So all parties have exchanged documents. They've gotten the testimony of the parties and non-party witnesses because you're allowed to subpoena and take the deposition of non-party witnesses if you so choose. So all this information has now been put together, and the attorneys have an idea of what they're going to argue if this case goes to trial. Now, there's something called a motion for summary judgment or summary dismissal, and essentially... It is a motion that you file with the court, a piece of paper, an argument on paper that you file with the court, and it, it has the, um, the properties of a trial, yet it's on paper. So what you're saying is you're putting down your thoughts and your arguments and you're saying to the court, Judge, we don't believe, now that discovery has been concluded, we don't believe that there are any questions of fact that need to be submitted to a jury and that you, the court, can decide this case right now. And therefore, we're asking you to do that. Decide that the plaintiff has no case and there's no claims that he can prove against me and therefore all claims should be dismissed. Decide that. And the way that a judge looks at this is... Are there questions of fact? What does that mean? Well, in law, judges can decide questions of law. Whether or not you have alleged and laid out a claim that um, fulfills the requirements and obligations in order to legally prove that you have rights under either negligence or, or some other cause of action. But questions of fact can only be analyzed and answered by a jury. So in other words, if your case is based upon negligence, and one of the elements of negligence is duty, did the defendant have a duty? Did they owe you a duty of care? 
and you go through the discovery process and you gather documents and you take testimony. And at the end of the day, you can't establish legally that the defendant had a duty of care or owed a duty of care to you. Your adversary can file a motion for summary judgment arguing that we've done all this, this discovery and you, the plaintiff, cannot prove that a duty of care existed. Well, a judge on summary judgment can decide that issue and say there are no questions of fact to submit to a jury. This is a question of law. And based upon my review of, of the motion and the attached documents, I believe that you have failed to establish that the defendant owed you a duty. Therefore, I'm going to dismiss the case. Now, conversely, let's assume that your case is a breach of contract case. And it hinges upon whether or not somebody fully understood the contract that they were signing. So the plaintiff says, hey, you entered into this contract and you owe me X amount of dollars. And the defendant says, well, wait a minute. Yes, I signed the contract. But the contract was so one-sided and so confusing, I couldn't understand what it was that you were saying my, my duties under the contract were. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to be a legal question. You know, the question is going to come down. It's a factual question. Do you, the jury, believe that the defendant didn't understand at the time he signed the contract what his duties and obligations were? So a judge can't decide that. Only a jury can. So in that instance, a summary judgment motion would fail because the court can't decide that. Only a jury can. So the judge would say, no, denied, and now you'll be scheduled for a jury trial. Okay, so now we've established that we're, we're you know, done with discovery. We've tried to, to get the case to be decided on paper, a trial on paper, via some sort of summary judgment motion or other way to dispose of the case, uh, depending upon what your state refers to that sort of motion as. And now you have a trial date. Well, depending upon the court, your trial date could be 30, 60, 90 days after the conclusion of discovery and all summary judgment type motions, or it could be a year later, depending upon the um, congestion of the court's doc docket. So, for example, right now in New York, uh, some of the counties are so backlogged that your trial date won't be until you know nine months to a year after the conclusion of discovery. Uh, in New Jersey as well, there are some counties where your case is going to you know be over with, you're all ready to go, and you don't get a trial date until six, seven, eight months, even a year later. So that's not uncommon. Now that being said, a lot of the stuff that you see on TV with respect to trials, it's not always accurate. And a, a, a good percentage of cases, over 90% of cases that are filed, are concluded before trial. They're settled. They're somehow resolved. Now, why is that? The reason is basically this. First of all, trial is expensive. It can be lengthy. It can be emotionally and physically taxing. Not every litigant, plaintiff or defendant, is suited 
for trial. Oftentimes, we've seen very emotional um, individuals who don't want to be put up on the stand and asked questions in front of a jury. They, They physically and emotionally cannot handle that. That stress is too much for them. And and we've seen clients who have said to, to us, listen, I don't want to go to trial. Let's see. Are they going to offer us any money? Maybe we should just take that. And even when the lawyer says, hey, wait a minute, I think that you've got rights that you're entitled to. We should go to trial because I think that you will recover more money. The client may say, no, I, I really don't want to. So when settling a claim or when, when approaching trial, Settlement is something that you always have to keep in the back of your mind. And quite honestly, settlement is something that you should be discussing with your attorney throughout the litigation process. At some point, depending upon the nature of your claim, you are likely to have an offer made by the other side to settle the case. That offer could come 60 days after filing your complaint, or it could come after your attorney has presented your case to a jury at trial. It can even come once both sides have presented their argument at trial and you're waiting for the jury to rule. So settlements can happen pre-litigation all the way up to right before a jury issues its, its verdict. Settlement is something that lawyers and judges encourage clients to think about because of the difficulty, difficulty for the client with with trial work. Now, that's not to say that there are no cases where you should take them to trial. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that there are a number of cases that need to be tried because the other side is unwilling to give you a settlement that you think is fair, whether it's business or personal. And in those cases, you need to have a lawyer that's going to aggressively pursue your claims at trial and somebody that can convey to a jury why they should decide in your favor. Trials can take, depending upon the the matter, a day all the way up to two, three, four weeks. And it's not the glamorous, glitzy trial that you see on TV with the, the smoking gun and the lawyer saying, aha, I knew you did it. Uh, it certainly isn't like uh, Legally Blonde, uh, that movie, I can't remember her name, but it's certainly not like that either, where she, she realizes that you would never go into the shower if you just permed your hair. Um, in fact, trials can be quite boring. You've got a jury that most often doesn't want to be there. They're, they're asked to be there, they're required to be there, and uh, sometimes they take an interest in your case. Other members of the jury just side with the popular vote because they just want to get out of there. Uh, and then you're going to be there with a the judge and your attorney, and you're going to be having witnesses up on the stand and questions asked of you. It can be very stressful, and it can be mm-hmm. uh, confusing and boring, but it's a necessary evil. And oftentimes, once you have uh, presented your case, a judge will even suggest to the other side, listen, you're going to lose. I just see the way that the jury is looking at you. I see the way this is going. I think you should probably settle the claim and, and give the plaintiff you know, a, a really fair amount. That's happened often where a judge will take us into his chambers at the conclusion of 
uh, the plaintiff's presentation of, of his or her case and, and say, listen, here's what I think you should do. Um, but then there are other times where there is no resolution and you just await the, the jury verdict and whatever happens, happens. Now, a jury doesn't always, unfortunately, decide based upon the merits. There are other factors that a, a jury is influenced by. And it's not fair, but nobody said the legal system is fair. A jury can be influenced by the appearance of the plaintiff or defendant or the appearance or demeanor of the plaintiff or defendant's attorney. I've seen and spoken to jury members who have decided in a way that I was surprised about on a particular case. And I've said to the the jury members when the case is over, what made you decide in that way? And, you know, oftentimes I hear things like, I really thought that the way that the plaintiff's attorney addressed us and addressed your witnesses were it was just very demeaning and he just was very arrogant and I didn't like that about him and and I just didn't think that was the right way to handle himself or to treat people and they'll decide in my favor simply based upon that now of course there are facts that were you know could have swayed them either way but that was the ultimate deciding factor and and that's not necessarily fair but it is human nature and that's what juries do so what happens when you get that jury award and you are not happy with the way that it's played out? What can you do? Oftentimes you, you hear people that say, well, you just appeal. Well, it's not that simple. In order to appeal to the higher court, the appellate division of whatever court you're in, you have to be able to establish that the judge erred. He committed some sort of error of law in order to permit you to uh, to appeal. Appeal isn't something that is uh, necessarily a matter of right. There's got to be a reason, a legal reason, where you can point to some sort of error, reversible error, uh, that would allow you to file this appeal. Um, appellate work is something that is somewhat of a specialty. Oftentimes, firms that are experienced litigators handle their own appeals. For example, our firm handles appeals. We take cases from you know the inception all the way through trial and through you know appellate division hearings. Uh, appellate division cases, depending upon um, the state you're in, are are complex. They're complicated, and they oftentimes don't involve the litigant per se. Uh, but the attorney will prepare a brief and they'll argue in front of a panel of judges and they'll decide whether or not the lower court's ruling should be upheld or if it should be overturned. So this was kind of a, uh, a, a speedy journey through the litigation process and through the anatomy of a lawsuit. It wasn't meant to give you a specific understanding of every facet of a lawsuit, but I do hope that it provided you with some general oversight as to how lawsuits work and what the litigation process is. They are uh, something that can be very intimidating to people that are not familiar with litigation, and it it can oftentimes um, make somebody decide that they don't want to move forward. And I think it's important to understand the process so that you can make an informed decision as to whether or not you want to pursue a particular claim. 
I think that having that understanding and being able to speak with your attorney and say, please explain to me what the next step is. I need to understand. That's something that you should do. Now, we're running out of time for today, so I want to invite you to call me at, at any time if you've got additional questions about this topic or you are concerned about how a case works, if you want to talk about some of the details. Uh, you can call me. I'm going to give you the, the telephone number to the office, which is 973-949-3770, or you can reach me directly via email at P. Lamont. That's P. L. A. M. O. N. T. at Peter Lamont Esq. dot com, and I'll be happy to answer any of the questions that you might have about this topic. Uh, because it is very, very critical that you understand how litigation works. So I thank you for joining me, and I hope that this uh, was helpful. Next week we'll be back with a live guest, and we'll be talking about uh, you know questions and answers that we've had for a prior business and tech uh, session. So next week we'll have a live guest in the studio to talk to us. Thank you again, and have a good week.